Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be with you. Uh, as, we, um, as we look at God's Word this morning, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that we have been able to gather here as your people with you in our midst. Father, we thank you that you are holy and you let us see some measure of that. Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the privilege of being able to understand it and to spend time together freely to uh, consider it. And I pray as we look at your Word today, that you would meet with us by your Holy Spirit for each one of us. That you would minister to us and to feed us with your perfect nourishment for us. Thank you that you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you have the experience um, I've had. There are some things in life that I really like, mostly. right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that I really like about it. So as a family, we like to ski. So there's a lot I really like about winter in Michigan. Scraping windshields is not one of them, right? So if I could take winter and say, well, let's just take that scraping the windshields part of it out, uh, you might fill in your own categories of things about winter you wish weren't here. But if we didn't have that, we say, wow, what a great, what a great place. Winter's okay, right? Uh, sometimes that's the way we feel about entertainment in our family. Like, we'll find a movie, and it's like, wow, this is a great movie. Well, all except for that one scene or the language or this character that, that's a lifestyle that we think is really messed up. and So we can just get rid of that part, then we could invite people over and feel good about watching this movie and, you know, that type of thing. And years ago, we had a DVD player. It was really cool that it would watch the closed captioning. And whenever foul language would be in the dialogue, it would just cut out the sound. And this actually turned out to be a good thing. There's some great movies that have great themes to talk about as a family entertaining, and this would just cut out the foul language. There were some segments where there wasn't a whole lot of sound at all, but then that was actually good. I mean, just clear that part out of it, and we would feel less embarrassed, so to speak, about that, about that movie, about that TV series. Sometimes I feel that way about uh, politicians, right? So there's a politician, I think, well, there's so much to like in this person, and, and yet they, you know, they hold this position here, and I wish, I wish we could just get rid of that or... They tend to be kind of arrogant and bombastic, and I wish they'd just get along with people a little bit better. And, you know, then I wouldn't feel bad saying, hey, I really like this politician. Right? So it's like I want, to take, I want to take something like that and just be able to edit it a little bit, and then I'd like it a whole lot more. It's a little bit you know, like having a graphic equalizer. You're listening to some music, and boy, the, the, the highs are just too piercing right now. I need a little more bass, so let's you know, slide this down, lift this up. Ah, now it's good. Right? I just like to tweak things a bit, and then I would feel really good about it. Nothing that would say, oh, I don't like that part so much. Sadly, sometimes that's how I think about God. Right? Uh, to be very frank with you, sometimes I think, you know, there's most of God that I really like. Uh, you know, he's creative, he's good, he's, he's, he's kind, he's, you know, he's just, he's all these things. But uh, there's sometimes some things that I think, oh, I just would like to turn that one down a little bit. And frankly, for me, sometimes that's what God's holiness is like. Right? I just wish he'd tone it down a little bit. I mean, his holiness is just so great and so grand. And I'm down here and, you know, it, when I feel guilty about something, it's just like, God, why don't you leave me alone on this one, right? I mean, I'm, I'm trying. Just, you know, don't, don't be so uptight about things. Why don't you just loosen up a little bit, God? And, and sometimes when I talk to people who are not Christians, this is how I feel when talking about hell. Right? It's like, I feel like I have to say, well, some people did something in time, and it doesn't matter how small it was, but if it offended God, he sends them to hell for eternity. And I'm kind of embarrassed of that, right? Really? 
God, why don't you just bring it down? So it's, it's kind of like, if you can imagine, a, a giant strip of paper here. And, and it goes all the way up you know, to the ceiling but beyond. But it's, it's like it's so high you can't see. And God's holiness is way up there at the top. And those of us who feel terrible about not being holy, we're living way down here, right? And so the holiness of God separates me from him. He's so high and I'm so low. And it's like, maybe, maybe you've got to tone it down a few notches. You know, just crank down the equalizer a little bit. Bring him down a little bit. I'll do my best to come up a little bit. And maybe we'll be okay here in the middle, right? I, I frankly feel that way sometimes. It's a little bit like inviting a really holy friend to a party. And it's like, oh, we were going to have a good time. And now, you know, and it's like, frankly, sadly, I think of God that way. And there was a German uh, philosopher, late 1600s, early 1700s. His name was Leibniz. A lot I don't understand that Leibniz said. He was very, very bright. But one of the things he said that got my attention is he said, God is the greatest possible being. Right, so if, if you can figure out a way to improve upon God, well, then either he's not God or you don't understand him. Right? So Leibniz says to me, okay, so you sitting there in your home in Hazlitt, you can sit there and think of how to improve upon the creator of the universe. <laughs> either he's not God himself or you don't understand. And I'm thinking maybe the problem's with my understanding. And so I realize, what is there about the holiness of God to love? And, and I don't want him to tone it down at all. How can I think about it in a better way such that, wow, this holiness of God, I'm thrilled it's way up there. And that's my question today. Is, is there something in the holiness of God that I'm thrilled about? To explore that question, we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah. I'd um, like you to turn there, if you would, Isaiah 56. Um, if you grab one of the Bibles in the, the rack in front of you, I think it's on page uh, 526. 526. So we're going to start in Isaiah 56. And let me just say a few words about Isaiah. Isaiah was a great prophet, uh, one of the what we call the major prophets, because we have so much that he wrote. Some of the prophets were, were uh, miracle doers. Elijah and Elisha just did these dramatic miracles. And some of the prophets were, were uh, speaking prophets. They just they said all sorts of things in dramatic ways. And, and some emphasized writing. And Isaiah is one who wrote And I think it's fascinating. The reason he wrote is he wanted people who were distant from him, both in time and in space, to know what he said. His message, he said, is important, not just for the people who were hearing and see me and hear me, but for people a long ways away, like us. Isaiah wrote uh, probably 700 years before Jesus was was born. And he wrote in the the, uh, kingdom of Judah. And so just to set the context, that for 120 years we had the United Kingdom of Israel, Right, 12 tribes, they shared one king for three straight kings, and then it split. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel went bad really quickly and never got better. Right? It was just a mess of a place. And God just repeatedly said, you guys are messed up, you better get straightened out or I'm going to kick you out of the land. And eventually, he kicked them out of the land. The southern kingdom was a bit better. Right? They had some really good kings and some very good days. Unfortunately, sometimes they were rather smug looking up to the northern kingdom and saying, well, at least we're not that bad, right? Well, God eventually said, maybe you are. And so when Isaiah wrote, he wrote to these people in the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's, it's kind of structured the first half of the book roughly. Isaiah says to the people of Judah, you are actually worse than you think, right? The problem is big, and you don't think so. 
And then the second half of the book, he says, but there's still hope. Right? So Isaiah is a book that, roughly speaking, starts out by saying there's a real problem, but there's also real hope. And the passage we're going to look at today touches on both those things. And uh, one of the challenging things about reading Isaiah is that his transitions weren't always clear. He'd just jump into a new topic and not really tell you when he did. And so sometimes when people edit a Bible, they'll put in headings to try to help us out. Those headings, Isaiah didn't give us. So people after the fact have tried to say, well, where is there a change here? So we're going to actually start in the middle of chapter 56. And I think you'll see where it's a significant topic that he introduces. Chapter 56, verse 9. And and as we read this, I just want to tell you what you're going to see. Isaiah says, maybe you're not thrilled about having a high and holy God, but you ought to be thrilled you don't have an unholy one. Because he says, unholiness destroys. And so he's going to use this image. He says, the people of Judah are kind of like a flock of sheep. And sheep don't do very well defending themselves. Right? But we've got a flock of sheep, and then we've got these kingdoms all around that are trying to eat the sheep. Right? So these kingdoms trying to eat the sheep, you've got these sheep that can't protect themselves. And so what God puts in place is leadership to protect them. So now listen to how Isaiah describes these unholy leaders. So uh, Isaiah 56, verse 9, All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. So this is the, these, these kingdoms around that are coming to attack and to carry away the sheep of Judah. So verse 10, His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one of them, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us drink heavily of strong drink. Then tomorrow will be like today, only more so. So you hear his description of these, these people who are supposed to be leaders protecting this flock. And what does he say about them? They're blind watchmen. Years ago, I, uh, I heard about a set of, of useless inventions. And one of the useless inventions was an alarm clock that didn't make any noise. It just gently waved a flag back and forth. Right? <laughs> a great thing. You know, if you're awake and looking at it, it tells you it's time to start moving. But, you know, it's a useless invention. It doesn't do you any good. Same thing with a blind watchman. Right? Somebody whose job it is to see trouble coming over the horizon. You want somebody with exceptional eyesight. And Judah had blind watchmen. They couldn't see anything coming. Right? They didn't know anything was coming. They didn't pay attention. They were blind to the dangers. It says a useless thing. Unholy leaders are just an awful thing because they can't see the danger coming. He says they're like mute dogs, unable to bark. So Dogs are, are, are a famous uh, technique for using a living thing to protect your house, right? So you want the dog to make a lot of noise when somebody's trying to break in and hopefully scare off the one who's trying to break in. About a year ago, we got a, uh, a puppy, and um, unfortunately, she doesn't really live up to that name anymore. She's grown quite a bit, and she has a bark that brings me great comfort, because it would not bring comfort to anybody trying to break in, (laughs) right? If she's scared by something, if there's something that gets her attention, it's this deep, rich bark that just, you know, it says to me, I'm safe, and anybody who wants in, I mean, I have no idea what she would do, but boy, does she have a bark, right? Also discovered that, you know, like a golden retriever, not a great watchdog. Oh, cool, more people, right? (laughs) You want a dog that, that says, I've got a deep, rich bark, 
I want you to know trouble's coming, and I'm going to scare off anything that might endanger you. So what kind of dogs are guarding the sheep of Judah? Dogs that can't bark, right? I don't know if you're supposed to hear the thumping of their tail or something. I mean, they, they can't do anything to help you. That's what he says these unholy leaders are like. They can't protect you at all. He says, they're dreamers lying down. They love to slumber. These are shepherds who just are serving themselves. In fact, they love to drink, right? They're shepherds that, that they just say, wow, cool, not much responsibility. You know, you can leave the sheep most of the time and they're okay. And so we can just relax and we'll enjoy ourselves. And tomorrow, even more so. Isaiah is saying, you know, unholy leaders, they, they don't lead, they don't protect. They're, they're, it's, it's a destructive thing. He says, you don't want leaders like that because he says, the sheep of Israel are in trouble if they have somebody watching over them who is self-serving, blind, mute, can't do anything about it. Now, what happens to these sheep? Isaiah says, it's not all bad even though these guardians don't realize what's going on. So look at chapter 57, verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. So Isaiah says that these guardians of the sheep, they don't even know when the sheep are being carried away, right? The wild animals are coming in, carrying sheep off, and the shepherds are off someplace having a drinking party. He says, it's an awful thing. And yet, he says, God is still taking care of his sheep. Right? So ultimately, he says, God will take care of his sheep, but these shepherds, these leaders, they are destructive, they're awful. And then Isaiah gets much more pointed. Uh, God speaking through him, he, he now goes on to just a horrendous description of unholiness. And he uses two startling, troubling images. One is sexual immorality. The other is idolatry, uh, of, of worshiping other gods. And he uses these two things, I think, because first of all, in ancient Israel, the two were very often connected, right? So when you'd go to worship at a, a temple of another god, sexual promiscuity was a big part of it, right? And, and so the two are deeply, literally connected in that way. But metaphorically, God also says, I am like a husband to you, Israel. And when you worship other gods, it's like you're being unfaithful to me. Metaphorically, when they would worship, it was like sexual impurity. And the ways he describes this are troubling. They're, I just forewarn you as I'm, I'm going to read through these words. It's just an awful description of how ugly this unholiness is. So chapter 57, verse 3. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves under the, among the oaks, under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines, under the clefts of the crags? Among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. 
Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself. You have gone up and made your bed wide. And you have made an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. You were tired out by the length of your road, yet you did not say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength. Therefore, you did not faint. Isaiah describes in just awful images of, the, of how terrible these actions of these unholy leaders were. It was just, it, it's, it, it, I mean, it turns the stomach to think of the things that they were doing and they acted like it was okay, right? They said, this is fine. And, and in fact, I, I'm just startled by this idea. In, in verse 10, he says, you got tired in pursuing evil, and so you said, boy, we better, better rally our strength to keep at this, <laughs> right? Not only when you get tired, you, didn't, you should have said, oh, this isn't working out. But no, they said, let's do it even more. Right? God describes just a horrible picture of unholiness. And again, Isaiah says, if you don't want a holy God, you definitely don't want an unholy God because unholiness destroys. And then he, he goes on even in some ways to mock them. In verse 11, he says, of, her, of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me nor gave me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. He says, you, you, you're afraid, but not of me. Uh, I've been patient, and yet you ignore me. He says, okay, I'll declare all the great acts you're doing, because they were still doing religious things. And he says, I'm going to tell about all the religious things you've done, but they're no use. They don't help you. He says, the wind will just carry them away, and you will get destroyed as well. He says, there's hope who take refuge in me, but for you, there is no hope. Isaiah tells us very clearly that unholiness destroys wherever it's found. Unholiness destroys when it's found in leaders. It's, 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 it's destructive when it's found in us. And we know this to be true, right? I mean, we want to deny it. We want to deny this idea that, you know, well, if I dabble a little bit in, in something that I know is unholy, it won't really hurt. We know it destroys. I think of somebody like Lance Armstrong. Right, so this bicycle rider, incredible physical ability and determination and recovering from cancer and winning all these races, and it's just amazing. And unholiness brings it to nothing. Worthless, gone. And we know this with great athletes. How many great athletes? You just say there's so much that's good, and yet there's this unholiness, and it just, it's gone. We know this about Leaders, like politicians, we know of people who have great power to, to explain their ideas, to think things through, to, to work well with people, to bring about legislation, that, you know, all this stuff that's so good, and unholiness destroys it. All of a sudden, they have nothing. Unholiness destroys. We don't always see it immediately, right? These people seem like they were on top of the world. And then it was over, and the house of cards falls flat because unholiness destroys. We, we see it in the, the level of, of countries and kingdoms. I think of the, the, uh, the Roman kingdom. Tremendous power and, and, and skill and ability to do things and just amazing. And unholiness just erodes it from the inside and all of a sudden it's gone. 
And we know it for us as individuals, right? It's not hard to find examples in our own lives and the lives of people that we love where unholiness destroyed people. It destroyed relationships. Uh, it, it's a destructive thing. And, and sadly, we see it even in the church, right? We see people who are great at religious actions and yet unholiness destroys. It's an awful thing. And, and Isaiah wants us to see how ugly and awful and destructive unholiness is. And we can't deny it. And so it's a good thing that God's not down here, right? He's not down in this part of the unholiness scale. It's a good thing. I wouldn't want a God who's like that. But I'm still feeling a little bit distant from this God whose holiness is so far up there. And now I realize how unholy I am. And I say, how do I, how do I embrace this? It just reminds me how far God is away from me. Is there something to embrace in the holiness of God? And so we continue. Actually, let's pick up that that middle of verse 13 again. He says, But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. So God, through Isaiah, is going to begin to describe to us the type of people who love the holiness of God who take refuge in him. So verse 14. And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So let's just reflect on these words for a few minutes. He, he, he begins by saying, build up, build up, remove all the obstacles. I want my people to come to me. So now I see it as a little bit different image. It's not so much that God is so high I can't get to him. It's that God is so far away on the other side of insurmountable obstacles that I can't get there. It's kind of like God's on the far side of the Grand Canyon and I'm on this side and the obstacles are too much. I just can't get there. And so God says, okay, let's build a highway, Right? God's great construction project. Let's create a way for people to come to me. And so he says, build up, build up. Remove every obstacle. Prepare the way. One of the questions I have is, you know, to whom is this command given, right? Who's, who's God talking to when he says, do this for me? It's a plural command, so it's not obvious to us immediately, but I think it's multiple ways that, that God intends this. One is that, that earlier in Isaiah, back in chapter 40, with a great transition to the good news in Isaiah, he says there's going to be a voice preparing the way, a voice crying out that prepares the way for the Messiah. And so John the Baptist was one who came to help prepare the way. He was one who helped fulfill that. And as we also spread the news to say there is a God who loves us and wants to accept us and create a way for us to get to him, we're helping to fulfill this command to build up, to prepare a way, to remove every obstacle. And when John went out, he said to the people, repent, change your ways. Your unholiness is keeping you from God. 
enough of the religious action. He says, be just people. Change how you live. And so he says, you also change the way. So the command is to each one of us, prepare the way in our own hearts for God's work. I think it's also a general expression of God's will to the angels and to all of creation saying, here's my design. The world is messed up, but I've got a plan. And that plan is I'm going to make a highway. I'm going to remove the obstacles and prepare a way for the people to come to me. Ultimately, I don't grasp how big a problem it is. And ultimately, there is no way for us to solve it. And so I'm convinced that the perfect fulfillment of this command of God was in Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he ultimately removed the obstacle of my unholiness so that I could be with God. This is the plan of our holy God to create a way, to create a highway so that we can be with him. Verse 15, see how he describes himself. It says, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever and whose name is holy. Just look at those words for a second. So God is repeatedly described as being the high and exalted one. God is described as being the one who is just high beyond our comprehension. He is way up there and we are way down here, right? It's, It's an emphasis of the distinction between where God is and where we are. And there's no way I can reach, right? There's no way we can get that high. He is high and exalted. He lives forever. English Standard Version translates this, God inhabits eternity. And I just love that expression, God inhabits eternity, right? I live in this little slice of time, right? Time is way too big for me because I only get my tiny little slice. Eternity is not too big for God, right? He is so big and so beyond me. He's high and exalted. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy, right? Holy Holiness isn't something that God has. It's not one part of him. It's who he is. This is his character. It's his nature. God is holy. All of these words emphasize how different God is from I am, from what I am. He is so high and exalted. He inhabits eternity, and his name is holy. His character is holy, and none of those things have anything to do with me. I am so separate from those things. And so then God says, here's what I say. I dwell in a high and holy place. God says, that's where I live. And also, he says, with a contrite and lowly of spirit. He says, I also live with those who are as low as you can get. And I love the the words that are used here. It's not obvious in Hebrew. This word contrite is basically to be crushed to dust. It literally is used as the word dust elsewhere. It's, It's people who are so crushed, there's just nothing left of them except dust. And in an agrarian society, dust is not a pretty thing. right? Everything's mixed with the dust, and, and we don't want to be that, and yet that's what we feel. And that, the, the word we have, contrite, also comes from that. It's this idea of like rubbing dirt clods together until there's nothing but the, fain, the fine grains, right? It's just, that's, that's what we're left with. And God says, I dwell with them. He says, I dwell with those who are lowly of spirit, literally those whose spirits are very, very low. He says, that's where I live. And what does he do when he's there? He says, I give life. I'm there to cause to live again. It's an amazing picture of this. God is too big and too far away for me to comprehend. And yet he says, I live down here with those who are dust, who are bowed down, and I give them life. Verse 16, he says, you know, I I can't go on with this forever. If I continued to pursue the justice I could pursue, it would destroy you all. You, you just, you wouldn't be able to endure it. And, and I love how he takes ownership for us, right? He says, 
the last line there, then the breath of those whom I have made. He says, your breath will be gone, but you're the ones I've made. He doesn't say, you're the breath of those who've rebelled against me. He says, you're mine. And if I continued to pursue the justice I could pursue, you'd never live through it. Verse 17, he says, I know that you guys aren't holy, (laughs) right? He says, in fact, because of your iniquity, I was angry with you. I punished you. I disciplined you. I hid my face from you. I was saying, maybe, God says, if I do this, my people will turn back to me. And yet, the last line, he says, it hasn't worked, right? He went on turning away in the way of his heart. God says, I've done what I can to bring you back to me, and it hasn't worked. And then verse 18 is just one of the most incredible one-verse descriptions of the gospel in the Bible. God says, I have seen his ways. He says, I know you're rebellious. I know you're unholy. I understand all this, but I will heal. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. This is an amazing thing. God says, I know you're awful people, and so I'm going to heal you. I'm not looking for all the perfect people because he says there aren't any. I'm looking for those who are down in the dust, and I will heal. I will bring comfort to those who are in pain, to those who mourn. Verse 19, he goes on to say that I'm going to create the lips, uh, the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far, to him who is near. And, and this word peace is such a rich one. It's the word shalom. It just says everything that's healthy and wholesome and good and life-giving. And God says, that's what I bring for those who are so low that they think they can't leave the dust. I proclaim to them peace. And Paul picks up on this near and far in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, The far are the people that everybody says, of course they don't love God. Of course they don't know God. The near are the ones that seem like they're so close and they ought to love God, but they're separated from him. And and so here Isaiah is saying, God has a plan that those who are way, way far away, you can't even tell where they are. They're so far away from God. He says, I'm making a highway for them to come and experience the peace of God. And for those who look like they're so close and yet are outside the peace of God, he says, I'm removing every obstacle from their path. I want to bring peace for them. And the Lord says, I will heal. So this for me is the amazing thing that I discover the holiness of God is a life-giving holiness, right? It it gives life. It's it's not just way away from me. It's also with me. So so here's, I finally realize. I've been thinking of holiness in the wrong way. I think it's just everything that separates God from me, everything about God that makes him unlike I am. And in one sense, that's true. And also, God, in his amazing way, comes from way up beyond my reach and lifts me up. And he brings those two things together. His amazing holiness next to my brokenness. And he gives me life. And with Leibniz, I say, how could there be a better God than that? Right? His holiness is not keeping him from me. His holiness is why he came to me. And so here's my discovery. I used to think the Old Testament God is the angry God. The New Testament God is the loving God, right? Now I realize this is the expression of the Old Testament God who says, I dwell up there and also with those who are crushed in the dust. So now I see the cross was the inevitable expression of the holiness of God. Not because the holiness of God was a problem that had to be fixed. It's because the cross was the expression of the holiness of a God who lives up there and here. I think, wow, if that's what holiness is, I love it. 
And I want people to know about it. I've been so wrong. How could I think that holiness was my enemy? Holiness is that which brings me life because of who our God is. Now, Isaiah wants to be sure we don't get, don't get confused about a critical aspect of this God who is up there and dwells down low. So verse 20, he says, But the wicked, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The sea in the Hebrew poetry was just the symbol of uncontrollable evil. And he says, there are people who continue to rebel against God. That They say, God will come down to us, but I want nothing to do with that. Right? They continue to rebel against God. And God says, there is no shalom for them. Right? God is not a universalist. He's not saying, everybody's fine. He says, there is real danger in my holiness for those who refuse it. And so then I go back to the middle of verse 13. How does God describe these people who gain life from his holiness? He says, but he who takes refuge in me. Right? Those who take refuge in God find life in God. Even in their sinfulness, even in their brokenness, if they take refuge in God, they find life in him. And so now I finally realize hell is full of people who will never take refuge in God because they don't want it. Right? It's, it's not, in effect, God's holiness that somehow has to be conquered. God's holiness is a life-giving holiness for all who will take refuge in him. And it's the people who continually say, I don't want that, who don't get that. Right? So it's not a picture of an angry God. It's a picture of the incredible stupidity of sin that says, I don't want that life that God will give. Right? I've been judging the wrong one. <laughs> right? God's holiness is a life-giving holiness. And when I see it that way, I say, wow, what a great God we have. Unholiness always destroys. Holiness brings life. Imagine this. Say that you've done something you know is wrong, and, and you carry the guilt, and you say, I need to confess to the person. I need to apologize to the person that I've hurt. And now imagine that the person that you have hurt is an unholy person, whether it's a boss, uh, you know, a friend, whatever it is. It's an unholy person who is vindictive and angry and self-serving. And, and you come and you say, boy, I am sorry about what I did. And what do they say? You ought to be. You have no idea. And I'm going to be sure that you pay for what you've done to me, right? That's a picture of, of confessing to one who is unholy. Imagine if the God of the universe were like that. What an awful, horrendous place that would be. Now, what's it like when you confess to someone who is holy, who is completely separated from all those things? And they say, thank you for apologizing. Thank you for confessing, and I forgive, and I give you life, and that is who our God is. So when we invite people into the holiness of God, we say, if you will come and recognize that you're like the dust, he will forgive. He will give life because of what Jesus did on the cross as an expression of the holiness of God. I don't know where each one of you is this morning. I suspect for some of us, we're running from the holiness of God. Maybe we're here because we feel like we have to be, uh, I don't know what it might be. Don't run from the holiness of God. It is the source of life for all who will take refuge there. Maybe you carry a lot of guilt. Don't hide it from the holiness of God. 
Invite the holiness of God in there to give life to that which is crushed. Maybe as you talk with other people, you're, you're, you're hesitant to talk about the holiness of God. No, this is what is good. And I'm convinced when people hear it, they say, of course, this is the way it must be. The God who is the greatest possible being is a holy God who doesn't hold it against us, but says, I've got a grand plan to create a highway so that you can all come through the cross of my son. So then 1 Peter uh, picks up this theme from Leviticus. He says, God is holy, so you also should be holy. And frankly, I have often read that as, oh, okay, I guess I should. You know, I, I ought to be holy and I don't really feel like it. Because I had a messed up view of holiness. Now I look at it and I think, really? I get to be holy too? I can be a life-giving presence to those who are crushed and in the dust? Sign me up. I want to be that. Oh, to give life to those who mourn, right? And that's what God says, that's what I want you to be because that's who I am. And then this picture for me of eternity in heaven. Not just a place of, of you know, long church services. and you know, it's, No, this is a place where I get to live out the holiness of God and be mentored by God himself. To be like him. To give life to be a rich source of who he is and all that is good because I get to participate in his holiness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your holiness. Father, forgive me and for any others who have been in my boat. Forgive us for thinking so wrongly about your holiness, for thinking that we could make you better than you are. Father, help us to see so clearly that your holiness is a life-giving holiness and all that is unholy destroys. But you bring life. Father, help us to rejoice in that. Help us to proclaim that to others. And Father, help us also to be holy like you are because you want to share that amazing gift with us that we also might be a part of your giving life to all that is bowed down and in the dust and mourning that they and we might rejoice in your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.